Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. The notion that there is one mind underlying reality is one of humankind's oldest thoughts. It has its source in ancient Hindu texts, Greek philosophy, and has been recast in various forms throughout the history of philosophy and even science, and is now a popular mantra in the New Age literature as inspired by some of the findings of quantum theory. The only problem is that the notion of the one mind remains directly opposed to our current scientific worldview, which is based upon materialism, where separateness and disconnection rather than unity rules the day. In his new book, One Mind, How, individual, how Our Individual Minds is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters, today's guest, Larry Dossie, puts together the evidence for the one mind and shows that this notion is not as radical as it seems and how we can all benefit, perhaps, by embracing its truth. And one more thing about Larry, he's also the author of 12 other books on the role of consciousness and spirituality in health, which have been translated into languages around the world. And he is, in fact, in my opinion, one of the leading thinkers in this area. Larry, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, Phil, it's great to be on your show. Thanks for the invitation. Well, it, this is a good time to do it because your book is is just coming out now, and I think it, it puts together, from what I can tell, a lot of the thinking uh, in this area, and this area of new, th new thought, new spirituality. And you titled the book, One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. So why don't we first start off by, by looking at what you mean by the one mind. What is it? I uh, consider the one mind to be a sort of umbrella for the customary way we have split up the mind in the 20th century. You know, in the 20th century, we, we basically took the mind apart uh, and we split it off into the conscious, the, conscious, the pre-conscious, the subconscious, the collective unconscious, on and on and on. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to put the mind back together and to suggest that there is a domain of intelligence that uh, includes all of those uh, variations which we have learned to make uh, in the 20th century. Uh, this is not just uh, philosophical uh, meanderings on my part. I think that we're obligated to do this because of empirical evidence that, that points in this direction. Uh, so although, as you've already implied in your introduction, that this idea has uh, great historical uh, uh, rootedness in the past, then uh, it, it is also true that there is a tremendous amount of empirical evidence that supports 
these historical views. So that's what I'm trying to do. Well, one thing that I think is, is true here from my perspective is that we're moving from maybe the metaphorical or the poetic to the real. Because one thing that one thing that strikes me is that remember that song from was it the '80s? We are the world, where yep. uh, all the the rock sure. singers got together, and you know what a what an inspiring song, and it was really intended, you know, for togetherness and to and to bring people together. But it really it really was more of a feel good kind of a song. It, and I think that that's that's tells the story. I think of the way that historically many people have approached statements about we are one or we are one mind, which is sort of like a poetic, happy thought. But I think you're saying something more than that, aren't you? Yes, uh, I, I certainly am trying to do so. You know, it is poetic, and uh, it can be metaphorical, and uh, it's certainly a feel-good concept, but uh, we, we have to go beyond that. Uh, this is more than poetry and metaphor and pretty talk. Uh, we're obligated, I think mandated, from the viewpoint of science to really stretch our concepts and limitations of how we see the mind. We've gotten into a position where I think that the uh, view of the mind, that it's limited to the brain, it's produced somehow by the chemistry and anatomy of the brain, and it's uh, limited uh, one per person, and it yeah. will be annihilated when we die. I think that is now a dangerous uh, place to stop in our concept of the mind, and I think that unless we do get on with things and come up with a more embracing universal definition of what consciousness is, I don't think we're going to fare well as a species on the earth. Well, I think that there's a, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, not, on, not only with what you just said, but also with your book, and to me it's very, very similar to the Tao, yeah. which, is, which is getting in touch with the way with with the way things really are. I mean, you have to ask yourself, well, why do we bother with all this stuff? I mean, are we just, uh, you know, uh, dreamers? Or are we just, uh, you know, uh, high-sounding intellectuals talking about these big concepts? I mean, to me, it's it's getting ourselves in line with what really is. Because well, I think, you, I think you're right about that. Uh, and I think uh, we could also say that this idea of the one mind is uh, extremely practical. Uh, it is true that we can trace this philosophically through uh, many different eons and eras, but we come out in the 21st century uh, with uh, something different, and that is practicality. Uh, I think uh, uh, this is about survival. Survival is the highest form of practicality I, I think there is. Yes. And so, again, metaphor, yes. Poetry, yes. Historical, yes, but a lot more than that in the 21st century. Well, I think that that is really the mission of of the of the 21st century. I hope so. But one of the things that, again, that I think you do differently here, and that you bring to the table, is that you bring empirical evidence to support the notion. This is not just, as we said earlier, happy talk. So it might it might help the listener right now. To talk a little bit about the type of the types of evidence that you have seen and experienced uh, through through your career, uh, 
that support the one mind. Clearly, you don't have time for everything, but why don't you why don't you tell us about some of the evidence that you think supports this notion of the one mind? Well, I'll begin by saying that there are two types of evidence. One are people's personal experiences, what are commonly and pejoratively referred to as anecdotes or just stories, uh, but they're evidence of a of a sort nonetheless. And the other type of evidence is empirical laboratory-based evidence. Uh, I'll start with uh, my personal experience. When I was uh, entering internal medicine practice uh, uh, about three decades ago, the very first year I was in medical practice, I, I had a series of what are called precognitive dreams, which basically are premonitions that come to one in dreams. And these played out uh, in the day uh uh, the succeeding 24 hours in such a complex form that uh, I I was unnerved. Yeah. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. I knew I knew this couldn't happen. You couldn't know the future before it occurred, and so I, I didn't know what to do with this. So I basically did nothing except sit on it for several mm-hmm. years. Uh, I saw complex uh, clinical. Uh, uh, stories played out in in patients before they even occurred. Uh, I knew the world couldn't behave like that. Uh, And then through the years, uh, my patients began to come to me with uh, similar stories, which they would always begin by saying something like, you know, doctor, I haven't told anybody this in my life, but uh, I want to share this. Uh, Nurses began to share their experiences with me. And finally, my colleagues, physicians, began to open up also when they became aware that I was interested in this area. Uh, I realized, Phil, that we were sitting on something that uh, was taboo, uh, which was of enormous importance, and that should be made public. And then when the experiments, the laboratory experiments, began to come out uh, years later, uh, I decided to put my name on a book exploring this sort of thing, and several books actually evolved from this resolution. So my journey began with personal experience, which I simply could not deny. Well, that's one thing about about personal experiences, and a lot of folks in this area begin their journey down this path, whether it's the journey of spirituality, enlightenment, yoga, or parapsychology, or whatever with a personal experience and there's one thing about them is that it's really hard to talk somebody out of the fact that they had the experience I mean I I think about that that book that came out last year proof of heaven by the doctor who had who had the near-death experience and you know here here you go from being a pretty it seems to me a pretty uh, orthodox neuroscientist or uh, I guess he was a neurologist, and he has this this near death experience, with which essentially breaches most, if not all, the assumptions of orthodox neuroscience. I.e., right. you're not supposed to have these these out of body these spiritual experiences. So, and it might also help. And I I didn't mention this yet, but but you are a medical doctor, correct? Yes, I'm a board-certified uh, physician of internal medicine. Uh-huh. So, so how how have you reconciled your journey down this spiritual path with your training as a medical doctor? 
Well, I have to confess that I didn't do so very gracefully at first. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want anything to do with this stuff. Yeah. I, you know, I, I realized uh, in a heartbeat that going public with these experiences was not going to be the best way to advance my career in medicine. Yeah. Uh, because these things uh, just were considered, you know, California woo-woo, and, right. uh, you know, he didn't talk about them in a polite uh, academic uh, company. So my next step, uh, after having my attention captured by the experiences, my next step was go to go to the literature and find out as much as I could about uh, evidence and empirical observations about this sort of thing, if there happened to be any evidence. Uh, I was uh, shocked about what I found. Uh, I spent years and years uh, pouring through the parapsychological uh, literature, uh, and uh, as I was doing this, actual empirical double-blind control clinical studies on remote healing, uh, uh, distant non-local healing, so-called, uh, began to be done, and uh, with positive results. These studies were done not just in people, but in uh, study animals uh, that are not subject to the placebo response or suggestion and that sort of thing. And the evidence accumulated, and I thought not to uh, deal with this in a public way was essentially academic uh, and intellectual cowardice. Yes. Uh, so I took a plunge and wrote a book called Healing Words. Uh, which looked at these uh, healing, remote healing experiments. It wound up, I'm happy to say, on the New York Times bestseller list and had a major influence in the openness of medical schools in the country toward this sort of evidence. And I think it's, it's important, or at least helpful, for the listener to understand what you're saying because having, having been trained as you were, in the in the modern mainstream medical profession this notion that things like prayer or um, or or intent visions can heal somebody is is if is more than radical it's it would almost be viewed as quackery I would think and, well, and so yeah. so it might be good for for you to draw the distinction for the listener on why why you know healing by prayer it seems so radical to the, to maybe the orthodox uh, medical doctor. Well, the accepted dogma is that our thoughts uh, may affect our own body. I mean, everybody knows that there's a mind-body connection these days. What you your your stress can damage uh, your body. It can cause high blood pressure, headaches, uh, various uh, maladies that we're all familiar with now. So we know that the mind can affect the individual person's body. What is radical, however, is that those uh, those uh, thoughts or feelings might extend beyond the limits of your own brain and body to affect somebody else out there in the world who may be a di quite a distance away and who, in fact, may be completely unaware that you're having these thoughts toward them or about them and so on. That's the claim of healing studies, that consciousness intention, compassion, uh, prayer, whatever you want to call this sort of thing, can operate beyond the limits of a person's brain and body, basically to change the state of the physical world. Uh, this is the claim. It is a radical claim against the backdrop of conventional assumptions about uh, the isolation of uh, consciousness to one's brain and body. 
But, you know, we have to get over it. Right. Uh, you know, we can apologize that it comes as a shock to certain people, <laughs> but what's the, uh, what's the alternative? The alternative is to ignore evidence, and that's not proper science. And well, so as practical and uh, earth-shaking as these things may seem, we're compelled to deal with evidence. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that point. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Religion. We're speaking with Larry Dossie, the author of many books, including the new book, One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. And we're talking about how evidence for remote healing is just one of the pieces of evidence supporting this notion that we're all part of one consciousness. Now it might help Larry to really give a, a, a real example from your practice on, on how prayer or compassion did have a physical effect on another person. Well, uh, let me give you uh, an example uh, of empirical evidence that uh, has uh, stood the test of time, which uh, a close friend of mine uh, was involved with. Her name was Dr. Jean Ochterberg, A-C-H-T-E-R-B-E-R-G. Uh, she uh, did a lot of original work in the use of imagery and visualization and stress management and so on. And she was interested uh, in this possibility that uh, distant healing might be real. She was recruited to do a study by Dr. Uh, Earl Backen, who uh, actually invented the implantable cardiac pacemaker, founded uh, the giant uh, firm Medtronic. Uh, Dr. Backen was an electrical engineer who just happened to have a fascination with this area of uh, distant, remote uh, healing influences. He hired Dr. Octoberg to do a study in Hawaii, where he lived, she went to Hawaii, spent a couple of years uh, getting uh, to know native healers, and then decided after a couple of years it was time to do the experiment. She invited the uh, native healers to recruit a patient that worked with in the past that they felt emotionally close with, uh, that they felt emotionally bonded to. And so this is one of those fMRI studies. That stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It's a fancy brain scan. And so the subject, the patient, was put in a, an FMR, fMRI machine and had their brain scanned, while at a distance, the healers tried to send healing intentions or compassion or love or prayer. They called it by various uh, terms. And then uh, the goal was to see if the healer could make a difference in the pattern of the brain scan. These healing sessions were done at randomized intervals. There was no way the subject could know when the healer was doing their thing. And then 10 out of 11 of these subjects, during the moments that the healer was sending whatever they do, the brain scan showed that the brain lit up in certain specific areas in 10 out of 11 of these subjects, and not when the healer wasn't sending healing compassions or prayer or what uh, whatnot. There was only one chance in 10,000 field that you could explain these results according to chance. And so here you had brain scan evidence that corresponded uh, at a distance with the healing intentions of patients, of a, of a healer. Uh, th this is, I think, very strong evidence that our thoughts and intentions, uh, when couched in emotional closeness and, and compassion, 
can actually change the state of a person's body at a distance. Well, that I think that is that's really that's really good stuff. And as you said earlier, which I don't think it can be repeated enough, which is that science itself is based upon empirical evidence. It's based upon tests, and that's this. It's always been the separation between science and religion. You know, science takes, I'm, I'm sorry, religion takes things on faith. Science is based upon experimentation and repeatability. And when things like that are tested and repeated and shown to be true or shown to have a basis, it really tells us that this is heading in the right direction. And in, and in fact, I really think this is exciting because, I mean, I would be excited as a doctor, as a medical doctor, because it opens up a whole new field of research. Well, it certainly does. And uh, I think uh, people should know also that these studies have been done not just in, uh, in humans. They've been done at various levels of biological complexity. Uh, there's even one study now that uh, was done about five years ago in Italy in which uh, researchers took human neurons uh, and they put them in two basins, two petri dishes, uh, separated them from each other and put them in what are called Faraday cages, which are lead-lined boxes through which no known electromagnetic signal uh, can penetrate. So there was no way these neurons could communicate with each other. And here's what happened. When they shined a laser light on one batch of these neurons at a distance, the other batch of neurons changed instantly mm. in the same and in the same degree. Wow. Uh, this is evidence at the cellular level that something remarkable is going on. There seems to be a unity, uh, a way of communicating when, in fact, all known physical forms of communication have been ruled out. These studies have been replicated now and they've been extended not just to single neurons or just a few neurons, but to whole groups of neurons, such as the human brain. Yeah, the, it's a, again, we are raised, and, and you talk about this uh, in your book, we are raised to believe that we are separate creatures. And again, it surely looks like we're separate creatures. I mean, that's, we sort of take appearances for being real. And we're viewed as, you know, we have, you know, we each have our own brains, our own heads, our own bodies. And it looks as if we're separate. But what you're doing here and, and what others have done, such as last, last week's guest or two weeks ago's guest, uh, Dean Radin, is showing the connection that science is starting to show between other, between different people and between actually ourselves and the physical world, right? I mean, this, this is yeah. showing that, that appearances can be deceiving. Well, I, uh, in my book, I, I don't try to destroy the idea that we are, in some sense, uh, individuals. Uh, my point is, though, that individualism can get the upper hand and exclude uh, other aspects of who we are. Uh, you know, I think individualism, uh, biologically, is absolutely necessary for the survival of creatures on this earth. If you don't have a, a, a good, strong sense of uh, uh, being uh, separate from predators and all of that, you're not going to last very long. So we're not here to deny 
uh, a certain sort of biological individualism. It's simply that's not all of who we are. We're dual creatures, uh, and uh, part of the other side of who we are is this unbelievable uh, unity which comes out under certain uh, situations. And so we want to honor both sides of the coin uh, and not just one of them. Along those lines, it seems as if we need to obviously be individuals because my own view is that if we were if we were only one it would be an awfully lonely existence i mean to put it in very t- simple terms and but we have to understand that at bottom we are really one and i personally think that that's that's where the scientific investigation is is heading to now one of the things that uh, I think is is important here is that what is another name for the one mind? Do you believe the one mind is God, or is 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 God just and one mind just interchangeable concepts? I mean, how would you how would you answer somebody that that to sort of pose it from a religious perspective? Well, I think uh, that's a crucial question, which always comes up, and it should come up. I have a chapter in the book. Uh, entitled, Is the One Mind God?, uh, which goes into this. Uh, My way of approaching this is uh, to say that the the experiments showing that we're connected uh, show that we're what I call non-local creatures. Now, non-local is just a fancy word for infinite. Uh, it, It really means literally not localized. And what that implies, uh, where consciousness is concerned, is something pretty simple. Uh, It says that uh, consciousness can't be put in a box. Uh, It can't be confined to the brain. Uh, It can't be confined to even a specific point in time, uh, such as the present. Uh, If something is infinite and unlocal in space and time, it's omnipresent, and it's immortal, and it's eternal. That's what infinitude in time actually implies. So it begins to look like we are creeping up on describing the Almighty. You know, we've always ascribed certain qualities and traits to God, such as omnipresence and infinitude in time and immortality, eternality, and so on. So it looks like there are qualities of consciousness that are godlike. I want to emphasize the like part of that. They're godlike. But I don't think that uh, there's justification for equating them uh, with uh, God. Uh, you know, an analogy that's been used in the past by many spiritual traditions is uh, the drop of uh, uh, water in the ocean. If you take a drop and analyze it, it's identical to the composition of the ocean, but it's certainly not identical in terms of power or extent and reach and so on. So I say that although the one mind shares divine qualities such as omnipresence and immortality, that's not enough to say the one mind is God. But, you know, that's just my take on things. There have been traditions where people have absolutely equated this unitary consciousness with God. So I sort of leave it open to readers to decide which way they want to to move on that. Well, I think the lot, a lot of this movement in this direction, assuming it's the right direction, which I think it is, I think it's a, it will be a natural evolution of consciousness. I mean, that's the way I view this. 
that we can't force this. I mean, we talk about it, we reason ourselves here, we use logic, and, and people like you and Dean Radin and others who are coming up with yep. scientific support for this principle, I think are really helping build the momentum towards this way of looking at things. And I think that that's what makes this really exciting is that we are seeing different fields from different perspectives pointing pointing here. I mean, I have a funny feeling you have been influenced by our favorite topic or one of our favorite topics being quantum theory, right? Sure. I mean, I mean everybody, I mean you can't you can't have a conversation like this without mentioning quantum theory. And so how how have you been influenced by by the famous wavy wave equations and entanglement of quantum theory? Uh, intimately and uh, profoundly. Yes. You know, I have a chapter uh, that links uh, quantum theory uh, with this idea of unified uh, universal consciousness, the one mind. And uh, I talk about the views of one of the great patriarchs of quantum theory, Erwin Schrodinger, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1933 for the so-called Schrodinger wave equations, which lie at the heart of modern quantum physics. Schrodinger is on record of saying, uh, mind is nowhere found in the plural. He said, uh, mind is a singular entity. He said there is only one mind. Now, you know, Schrodinger didn't arrive at this conclusion through having some sort of fever dream or, or anything like that. This is uh, one of the greatest intellects of the 20th century who came to the conclusion through his science, through quantum physics, that uh, all consciousness is unitary. He's not alone. The modern physicist David Bohm, who died a few years ago, came to precisely the same conclusion. My point is that some of the greatest intellects uh, who were the architects of quantum theory uh, felt very comfortable with this idea of the one mind. And they thought it was a necessary conclusion that follows from quantum physics. And, and, and again, I think what's so cool here is that it's, we have an independent line of analysis suggesting the same conclusion. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations beyond science and religion. I'm happy to have as the guest today Larry Dossie, who's the author of the new book, One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. And we're talking about what quantum theory does to support this notion of the one mind. And, and once again, for those who haven't um, spent the last couple years um, perusing the books on quantum theory, in a nutshell, what it what it says is that the world does not dis exist of discrete particles having an independent existence from consciousness. That's one way to, to put it. And where that leads to is that what we really have out there, if anything, are fields of energy, waves, that are somehow interconnected so the world looks more like dream stuff than ball bearing. That's another way that I would put that I would put quantum theory. And and in fact, what's so interesting is that it is probably the leading theory of physical science. So science is pointing 
in the same in the same direction. And I can't help but uh, again, Larry, uh, uh, sort of underline what you were talking about when you were uh, speaking of Schrodinger, and I think uh, Sir James Jeans was the same, and even Max Planck, the founder of quantum theory, the guys that invented that that really did the deep thinking on quantum theory in the in the early 20th century many of them when they when they thought themselves through they reached a conclusion that mind or consciousness is fundamental well right. i happen to recall a quotation from max planck and i uh, i i'll recite it to you but i in order to underscore what you just said you know, the modern view is that uh, consciousness is derived from matter. You know, the brain is said right. to make consciousness, sort of like the the liver makes bile or the pancreas make uh, insulin. <laughs> but but Planck, uh, who who really started all of this quantum stuff in 1899, uh, turned that upside down. What he said was, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We, we cannot get behind consciousness. Uh, everything we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. So the point uh, I would make is that, look, this, this is not some saffron-robed oriental mystic who's, you know, having some sort of epiphany on the other side of the earth. Yeah. This is one of the great minds who started all of this quantum stuff, saying that you can't derive consciousness from anything. It's the other way around. Uh, you know, people can line up uh, on this any way they wish, uh, but it, we should go on record as saying that some of the great patriarchs, some of the greatest intellects in the 20th century, believed in the fundamental unitary nature of consciousness. And, and I think that that, you know, I, the Tao of physics, which we all recall from the 1980s, was, was one of the first books that really tried to tie together or did tie together quantum theory with with eastern mysticism eastern mysticism uh, being the notion that in fact we are part of a united whole i mean you were talking about earlier about how we are uh, potentially part of god well that is exactly what hinduism is based upon the notion that atman which is the individual self is part of brahman which is the one big mind Movie. So, so all of this stuff is coming together, and and again, I, I say this a lot in the show, but this is why I'm doing this, is because I really see different lines of analysis of different fields converging here. But we need to address a question that a lot of listeners might have, which is, what difference does it make? I think it makes all the difference in the world and I mean that uh, practically, literally. And I think if it doesn't begin to make a difference uh, to the human race, we are going to have a really hard time uh, meeting the challenges that we face and surviving as a species. And here's why. Uh, the idea that we're isolated creatures, that we're just individuals who are out to get what we can get for ourselves, and we're uh, facing a world out there that's totally separate, has led to an explosion of greed and selfishness and degradation of uh, this world, this environment. Unless we can learn to think in a different way and uh, stop seeing 
everything else as the other, we're not going to be able to marshal, I think, the caring and the deep love that's going to be required in order to stay alive. Uh, we're in deep trouble as a species. Most thoughtful people understand that by now. And I think that we have to have some other way of viewing our connectivity with not just other human beings, but with the, all the other creatures on the Earth. Uh, as Alice Walker, the great novelist, uh, said once, she has a book by this name, she said, anything we love can be saved. Yes. And so the question is, what, what the heck is it that we love? What do we love enough to preserve uh, and to save? And I think that a sense of unity, of having a conscious connection with each other and with all other sentient creatures is going to be required if we're going to make it. Well, I, th I think that the, the point here, and we, we touched upon this earlier, and I think this is related to the metaphorical versus real issue, because too much in the last, in the, in the last hundred years or so, when we talk about these concepts of we all are one and we are the world and all these nice thoughts, it's like, well, we have these nice thoughts thoughts, we sing a song, we we are inspired maybe going to church, and then we go out and we beat each other up, and we, and we um, you know, pursue our own uh, material ends. We go to war with other religions, and we, um, and we, and we, and we fight over uh, religious sites, and have, have, have all sorts of, all sorts of things that we do that are destructive of the earth and of other people, and to me that means that we haven't brought this notion of oneness fully into our lives. And 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 I'm not. I think this is more of a scientific question or than a spiritual question. I think it needs to be, it needs to be uh, taught from the bot from the top down, Larry. I think that's my that's my thing. I think that we cannot have a world where we really follow the notion of the one mind while the leading universities are teaching exactly the opposite. Well, can I chime in on that sure. you know, from a slightly different angle? Sure. You know, a lot of listeners may be thinking that uh, this is an irrational conversation. On the one hand, we're talking about oneness in quantum physics, and you know, here are these two guys extrapolating from electrons to people, and you know, that's just sloppy reasoning. Uh, it, it, it isn't sloppy re reasoning. As a matter of fact, it's entirely rational. Uh, you know, we started out with uh, Schrodinger and entanglement and non-locality uh, being manifested between subatomic particles such as photons or electrons and so on. But the fact is, as we were talking earlier, you see the same sort of intimate non-local connections, not just between subatomic particles, but between various levels of uh, biological complexity. We've already talked about how those neurons, human neurons, behave uh, non-locally. You stimulate one and a distant one changes instantly in the same way. You can go up to brains and stimulate one person visually, and if he's emotionally connected with a distant individual, that individual's brain changes instantly in the same pattern, whether you're looking at it with the electroencephalogram or brainwave tracing, or whether you're doing a functional magnetic resonance, imaging fancy brain scan on these two people. And so you go from photons to, you know, electrons and then neurons and then brains and 
whole people and you see the same level, the same sort of non-local unity between these distant entities. And so it is not irrational to extrapolate from quantum physics up to the human level. And I think that this is one of the great pieces of understanding that we're just going to have to suck it up and, and get used to because this field is empirical evidence that is becoming more abundant and is not going to go away. I believe and, and hope that, that you're right. And I all the signals are pointing in this direction. I mean, one of the one of the things that I do sometimes is look back and in the last 20, 30 years, I'm dating myself, but if you look at the number of books on this topic, and I don't mean exactly the topic of your book, but this notion that that we are moving towards a, a more spiritual mindset, a non-materialistic mindset. I mean, there's so many people going down this road, and I really think what it needs is it needs credibility. And and I and over time, people like you, I mean, you're a medical doctor. You were raised and trained in exactly the opposite field, and yet yet your own personal experiences and the evidence has, point, has pointed you in this direction, and now you're writing books like uh, The Power of Premonitions and, and your book uh, Healing Words, and, and, of course your, and, of course, your new book. And, and this, is, this is telling, I think, all of us that this is a natural movement here because I think it's bringing us back to what we really are. It, 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 feels, it feels natural. Well, I think you're exactly right on, on that. And I would uh, want the listening audience to know that we're making progress. You know, 30 years ago, this was a tough sell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, uh, the C word consciousness was, you know, you, you didn't talk about consciousness. Yes. But, you know, it's all different. And not only are we talking about consciousness these days, we're talking about new theories of uh, the origins of uh, consciousness and its destiny. Uh, this was heresy 30, 40 years ago, uh, but now we're talking about consciousness as fundamental in the universe, working through brains, uh, but not produced by brains, and acting non-locally and infinitely in uh, space and time. Uh, as far as the healing evidence goes, uh, I can tell you that uh, back in 1993, when I wrote that book on healing uh, called Healing Words, only three of the 125 medical schools in the country in the United States had any coursework looking at the connection between spirituality and health. But as we speak, Phil, there are about 90 medical schools that now have developed formal coursework exploring this information. That's now, great. I'm, I mean, that, that's a that's a landmark development. Yeah, that is amazing. That is, I didn't realize it was. I didn't realize it was that high. I'm not saying they're standing yeah. up and cheering about all of this, <laughs> yeah. but it, you know, it's it's yeah. uh, it's in the curriculum. It's uh, it's up for discussion, and this is just a huge advance. It's not tabooed anymore to talk uh, in these terms. Well, we haven't. I don't think we have time to talk about the role of the pharmaceutical industry and Wall Street in all this. But but it's breaking breaking the hold of materialism on the medical profession is not going to be easy. But there's nothing like results. Right? I mean, there's not. I mean, one of the beauties of of many forms of alternative healing is the lack of side effects. Right. Right. 
I mean exactly that. Right. I mean the side effects are. I mean if it's amazing to me, you know, and and we might be uh, this this might be a little dis, uh, much of a diversion here, but it's amazing to me the the, the number of side effects that the uh, that the favored prescribed drugs have. And of course, that's always been part of the problem. That's why people tend to try a holistic medicine or alternate forms of healing. Because, as they say, if if the disease doesn't doesn't kill you, the the cure will. And and that's that's a a, a big problem. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Larry Dossi about his new book, One Mind. How our individual mind is part of a greater consciousness and why it matters. Now, I want to move to the future here a little bit, Larry, and, you, and we both touched upon it a little bit. But what do you think about the mainstream acceptance of some of the ideas in your book? What, what's, what's the state of, of that in your mind? I think that people are ready for this. Uh, not only are they ready, they're desperate for it. And I have had the opportunity to talk to tens of thousands of physicians over the past few years about their evolving uh, attitude toward consciousness. And uh, 30 or 40 years ago, Phil, this uh, was a dead conversation. Uh, now, when I go into medical schools and hospitals to discuss these issues, there is almost no uh, uh, pushback on these ideas. Uh, I think that uh, one reason is that physicians themselves are so degraded spiritually yes. that they're absolutely hungry uh, for a way out of the uh, miasma that constitutes current medical practice. Uh, most uh, physicians now are depressed. Yes, uh, I'd say half of them are on some sort of mood elevator or antidepressant, and we're in deep trouble. Yes. Combine that with the fact that every year in the United States, around 200,000 people die from the effects of side effects of medications or actual medical mistakes in hospitals, and you have you know an epidemic that people just simply won't talk about. Yes, we're in a desperate uh, situation as far as our health care is concerned. The idea that we have uh, one of the greatest health care systems and outcomes in the world in the United States is false. We rank about number 16 in many, uh, many uh, UN surveys of uh, the healthiness of our population and what our system can actually produce. And so uh, we are learning that consciousness is one of the great ways forward. Here's why I say that. Uh, four years ago, there were four, three or four international uh, studies looking at the reduction of stroke, uh, uh, cancer, and heart attack and hundreds of thousands of people in different countries. And they all pointed in the same direction. We now now know that approximately 75% of these lethal illnesses could be prevented through decisions and choices people make. And when we use the term decisions and choices, we're talking about consciousness here. We're not talking about taking a medication that will hopefully make all this stuff go away because it doesn't exist. Right. But if people could use their own choices and their sense of free will and their sense of empowerment to change the decisions they make and how they order their lives, we could do away with approximately 75% of cancers, heart attacks, and strokes. 
Imagine that. Yes. If you could do that with a pill, it would be marketed tomorrow, and uh, we wouldn't uh, have uh, any argument about it. But it's so simple that we hide from it. And one reason we do is because we've had a very disturbed way of thinking about our own minds and the potency of, of our own consciousness. In a, in, you know, nobody criticizes the attitude or the passion of a doctor. I think doctors have the hardest job that there is. And I could see it being frustrating to to be charged with healing, curing, helping a patient without having all the tools that are needed to do the job. And I mean, I think about cancer as being an example where we're still using pretty archaic methods to treat cancer. And, and I really think that if the medical profession puts, puts its power behind what you're doing, I think we're going to be seeing dramatic improvements. Now, I think it's going to take a long time because, Larry, one of the things about this one mind notion is that there are ideas, beliefs buried in that one mind that are going to take a long time to uproot. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of. I mean, I know that you you mentioned you mentioned that uh, in your book, and and actually last week on my show I had a gentleman talking about positive brainwashing, where we were actually on this topic about how we really need to unlearn many of these ideas that we've been raised with. And I think one of the things that we need to unlearn is that the only way that you could heal something is by taking a drug or by undergoing surgery. And and so I think that this, I could see why people would be excited to try something new. Well, my message also to the listening public is that uh, there is good news. You know, I remember when uh, alternative medicine, so-called holistic medicine, first got started in this country. Uh, I was practicing internal medicine at the time, and uh, it was laughed at by the medical schools. Hmm. And uh, the very idea that people would actually do something as crazy as jog hmm. or actually go to a health food store was considered laughable. People who did that sort of thing were called health nuts. Yeah. Now, every major medical school in the United States has a department of alternative or holistic medicine, uh, and uh, they are now preaching uh, for the things that they were bitterly opposed to uh, in the early days of holistic medicine. So my message is that uh, uh, change is possible, uh, and uh, we're on the right path. We're going forward and not backward. But as you point out, the obstacles are still tremendous, particularly from uh, the financial pressures uh, that are put on doctors and uh, our government in promoting materialistic approaches to staying healthy. Uh, so we have to keep chipping away at it. Change has happened. Progress is going on. And so, you know, there's every reason to be hopeful. But uh, I will say that time is not on our side, Phil. And uh, <laughs> I, I have a sense of urgency about this, and uh, I know you do too, and so do a lot of our listeners. Uh, we need to get on with things because uh, uh, the situation is urgent. Well, I like, I like the way you, you put in your, your book on a personal level. I like the way you put in your book that one of the benefits to the one-mind approach is, is 
is immortality, but I guess you were, you were referring to the one mind. Uh, but but uh, there are a, there are a, lo are a lot of, of benefits to this, and and but you're saying something not only on a personal level, yeah, but on a global level. And there was something in your in your in your book you talk about the overview effect. Mm -hmm. What is the overview effect? The overview effect is the term that's given to uh, the experiences of astronauts and cosmonauts who return to the Earth from outer space. Uh, there's, some, there's a book called The Overview Effect, which mm. describes how uh, most of these men, and most of them have been men, uh, who have come back from outer space uh, have had transformative experiences on their way back. Uh, a great example is Edward uh, Edgar Mitchell, who founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He was the lunar module pilot for Apollo 14, and coming back, he saw the Earth in space as a little blue ball, and he had an epiphany. He saw that it was a united, uh, a unitary uh, object. He, you couldn't see any boundaries or divisions between countries from outer space. Uh, and from that vantage point, all of the divisions and, uh, and uh, so on that humans experienced seemed utterly trivial. And so he came back, uh, transformed, and started the Institute of Noetic Sciences that has been one of the great uh, mouthpieces for the unitary view that you and I have been talking about. That's the overview effect. I think we all need a good dose of that, Phil. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so, and which is, which is looking, at, looking at the whole and looking at really how we all have our roots in the same place. I mean, that's another way to... That's another way to put it, and that that leads to the question for an individual: Is there some way to that somebody accesses the one mind? I mean, what what does somebody do to experience some of this? Well, I think it's uh, easier than people think. As a matter of fact, I think the, it's the other way around. I mean, it's such a common experience and so freely available, it's really amazing that we've shut ourselves off from this awareness. Uh, throughout history, the spiritual traditions have laid down pathways and avenues to have this experience. Certainly meditation, contemplation, prayer, and so on has, uh, has been a time-honored way of trying to tap into this awareness. Uh, I experienced this uh, the way a lot of other people do through uh, dream revelations and epiphanies in dreams, uh, confronting experiences which blasted and demolished my way of thinking about uh, separateness uh, being the, the principal way that we're, we're constructed here on Earth. And other people have had this through just spontaneous experiences. Uh, there's a huge literature of people who gained this sort of awareness suddenly without any sort of uh, uh, warning through exposure to art or music or something as simple as a sunset or a sunrise. Uh, people now are commonly describing this awareness coming through near-death experiences or what are called nearing-death experiences and so on. But, you know, I think uh, it's difficult to be unaware of this. You go into any bookstore these days, you'll be uh, deluged with possibilities that speak to this kind of unity. So I would just say open up to it, you know, uh, form your intention. You want to understand this. You want to experience this. 
And if you set an invitation of that sort, it would be unusual for you not to experience this. Yeah, and I think that each of, and I think anybody can do their own experiment. That's one. That's that's another way to put it. Good way it, to put it. You know, do your do a personal ex- experiment, and just pretend, if you will, that this that this unity, that this one mind, that this uh, that this ocean exists, and that and that we are all part of this moving river and see what happens I mean I it's amazing it's amazing how things tend to all fit together and become more positive you you talk about how it it increases creativity which is something that I I definitely think happens that this is all part of opening up your mind to new ideas and breaking down those old barriers now Again, uh, Larry, I'd like to thank you very much for being with us. Uh, this, this has been uh, you know, a conversation where I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with somebody who I happen to agree with 100%, and so it's sort of, it's sort of, an, easy, it's sort of an easy thing to do. I, I was just wondering whether you'd like to leave the listener with any final thoughts about, about uh, what you've learned from, from writing this book. Well, it's made me uh, much more sensitive to my own oneness, uh, to other people. Uh, I think my understanding of uh, skeptics has really uh, changed. You know, I've become much more tolerant of uh, people's uh, differing views because I see them as trying to come to an understanding of how the world works and be true to their intellect as well as their emotional side. And... uh, uh, but I've also developed a strong sense of urgency. I don't think that this is a, a philosophical plaything, this idea of the one mind, to, to be contemplated at leisure. We really do need to get on with things. Uh, so uh, I think uh, my sense of tolerance has certainly uh, broadened, but also my sense of urgency and the need to move things along has, has also uh, increased. I had the opportunity to talk to David Bohm, the great uh, physicist, mm. about uh, his ideas about this before he died. Uh, I asked him, did he think we were going to make it? <laughs> and uh, he thought long and hard, and finally he said, yes, Larry, we'll make it barely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, the way it, that's the way it normally goes. That's the way it normally goes. And, and it, there, it, it, is in, it is encouraging that there are that there's so many people heading in this direction and i i can't help but think that at some point we'll look back and say well how did we ever believe in this mechanical ball bearing world it's staring us right in the face and and i think that there is an evolution going on i mean darwin was partially right in my opinion there there is an evolution but i think that underlying it all is an evolution of consciousness is an evolution of awareness and I think that we need to rise to this understanding of who we really are and 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 join with the one mind and let's face it it's possible that that this is all completely wrong but it's sort of like Pascal said a couple hundred years ago if it's right and I think it is, we are heading towards a much brighter and, and positive future. I actually want to say to people, look, 
this is easier than you think, this experience of the one mind. You don't have to uh, acquire it or develop it or manufacture it. It, it is who you are already. Right. All we have to do is to wake up to it. Right. There's, there's no assembly required here. Right. And I think I think that's 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 probably the most important thing to say. It's be who you really are with no inhibitions and and really it's sort of like become the child uh that we started. Uh this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Larry, it's been a great conversation. My honor. Uh, Thank you. And and of course, uh folks should should know Larry because he's got some some great books out there on Amazon, including, as I mentioned earlier, Healing Healing Words, The Power of Premonitions, and and his new book, uh, One Mind. Uh, so we'll see you next week. Larry, thanks a lot. It's been great talking with you. Thanks, Phil. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 